Hi, this is Sean Fensky, Editor-in-Chief of MPO, back once again for another episode of Mike on MedTech. Joining me as always, Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm well, thank you, Sean. How about yourself? Uh, very well. Great. So, uh, so our, our latest uh, podcast is going to focus around a New York Times editorial board statement that came out in early May. Um, don't know if you've seen it. We'll provide the link below uh, in, the, in the information below. But uh, you could probably just Google New York Times editorial board medical device and find it. Anyway, they've they rehash a lot of what's being said in the news, whether it be the Bleeding Edge uh, documentary, which we've talked about uh, at length, uh, the investigative report that was done by the international journalists. Uh, there's, you know, there's been a few things, and, and it's been in the news. Medical device has been getting a little bit of a black eye. The FDA actually is a little bit more so, another, another aspect that we've discussed. So for this, I wanted to get past that and just go to what's suggestions the New York Times statement makes on how the industry uh, and FDA can help to resolve some of the, uh, some of the problems that uh, are being brought to light. Um, so the first suggestion that the New York Times statement makes is to tighten approval standards. Uh, so, uh, Mike, as, as you're well aware, we've discussed some of the changes or some of the uh, uh, ideas behind revising the 510K, and really that was the focus of their, of their suggestion. It was the 510K pathway. So my first question to you is, should products that are intended to reside in the body for an extended period of time require a PMA pathway, and how would that compare to the current protocol? Well, that's a great question, Sean, and thanks as always for the opportunity to chime in on this very timely and important uh, issue. So simply put, we have a number of devices that uh, are intended to be in the body for a long time, so-called permanent implants, that can legitimately be brought to market under the 510K. Um, the question is, should it be allowed? You know, people have suggested in the past, should um, uh, all permanent implants, by definition, be class three and require a PMA or an HDE? Well, it would be very easy to implement uh, that kind of a regulation because it would it would take all uh, decision making you know out of the equation. And some people do like regulation that's very black and white. I, Sean, as you probably know, is not a is not a fan of that approach. Um, it, it, and here's one of the downsides of that strategy. If we were, to, if Congress was to say raise the bar to be class three, and they could do that in a nanosecond, how many medical devices would we not have in the future? As you know, Sean, for example, in orthopedics, there are a number of devices that um, are permanent implants used in orthopedics. They have been for a long time that are class two that are 510Ks. I've been in a number of companies where I have raised this question, hypothetically speaking, if we, uh, if we raise the bar, if these things now became class three PMA, how many of your devices would continue to be developed? Nobody raised their hand. 
As a matter of fact, some people have said, you know, we might as well close our doors and go home today because, uh, you know, the, the, the company is just not going to do that. Right. So it's one thing, Sean, to talk about um, the safety and efficacy of the devices that we have right now. But when we make regulatory changes like this, how about the number of people that are harmed because they don't have access to a particular medical device in the future because we've raised that regulatory bar, that regulatory burden, so to speak, such right. that companies, maybe those working, listening in our audience, um, they just decide, you know what, it's not worth it. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great w way to look at it as well. Um, so that takes me to my next question, which would be, uh, does it, would it make sense for the FDA to explore the idea of doing a, co a type of hybrid that falls between 510K and PMA, or for lack of a better term, an implantable 510K where it, it serves as the middle ground between the, the product is recognized that it is going to be placed into the body for uh, quote-unquote permanent use, depending on, you know, what that is for an orthopedic implant. Obviously, that's much longer than, say, perhaps a, a drug delivery or, you know, a, another type of device that's not uh, truly permanent, but definition of regulatory is permanent. Um, so, you know, serves as a hybrid. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a great suggestion, Sean, and I love the phrase implantable 510K. And look, I'll be the first to, uh, to, to, to say that I'm in favor of any regulatory changes that would actually result in um, better products and ultimately to make the world a better place. Unfortunately, I don't usually see that. I see a lot of regulatory changes that create more paperwork, more bureaucracy, but not necessarily safer products. So I would argue that actually we have a system like that in place right now when the system is used properly. For example, as you know, Sean, the vast majority of um, of 510Ks do not require clinical data, but some do. And so perhaps as a starting point, again, I'm not in favor of black and white regulation, but maybe any permanent implant, regardless of if it's class 2, maybe a 510K or a de novo or class 3 a PMA, that should require clinical data. Uh, oftentimes, these kinds of devices do require, but if people are looking for a more concrete, a more black and white regulatory solution, that might be a place to start. And on the flip side, Sean, that you made a suggestion on the 510K side with the so-called implantable 510K. Let me make a suggestion on the PMA side. This is a suggestion that I've made in the past. I think what we really need is a de novo-like PMA. Because in the PMA world, in the class three world, let's face it, we have a ton of me too's, just like in the 510K world. Right. You know, we have um, pyramidal coronary stents, for example. There are, they are, there are dozens and dozens of them. All of them are class three, but they all basically are the same thing. They work the same way. So in order to kind of separate the truly new, truly novel class three devices, I've advocated, and we've had a little bit of discussion about this at FDA, not much, creating a de novo-like subcategory of PMA. So perhaps a combination of this implantable 510K idea that you proposed along with this de novo-like PMA. I'm not a big fan of creating a whole bunch more regulation, a whole bunch more uh, pathways, but perhaps that might be at least worthy of a more detailed discussion. Great. And uh, I, I think you're, you're 
closing closing comment to that kind of uh, segues into my next question. So I think I already know what your response is going to be. But um, you know, creating something like an implantable 510k, or you know, starting to look at making sub pathways for uh, application specific pathways for uh, uh, you know certain approval. Uh, procedures, is that going to be a problematic uh, situation where we're opening up a can of worms where device manufacturers are going to say, oh, our, our device is unique but not so unique that it needs a PMA. Can we get a sub-pathway? I mean, are we, are we you know, opening up a can of worms here? Well, that's a good question. And uh, look, one, regardless of how many pathways that we have and how many new pathways that we might create, one of the things that really differentiates my approach to this as opposed to so many others is I'm a huge fan of, being, of doing what makes sense. And to me, I always start with the engineering and the biology. All of the customers that I, that I work with, I say, you convince me of the biomedical engineering and the biology, the pathophysiology, and once we, get, once we do that, then we can talk about the regulation. I personally don't care how many pathways. You know, that's my job as a regulatory professional to figure out how to get my new technology uh, through the, the regulatory framework using the pathways that we exist that that exist. If we want to talk about creating these new pathways, um, that's fine. But I'm not convinced that if we create one new pathway or two new pathways or 10 new pathways or 100 new pathways, I'm not convinced that simply creating new pathways is going to reduce the number of problems in the future. That's the ultimate uh, test, is whatever we do here, will that reduce the number of problems in the future? And at the same time, will it not slow down or stifle innovation of new products? That's the balancing act that we have to, that we have to um, uh, think about. Okay, good point. Uh, so, all right, so I, we're going to move on to the second suggestion from the New York Times statement, and that is to fix post-market surveillance. So, you know, you're, you're out there, uh, you know, you, you've been doing this for, for quite some time. In your opinion, what are the problems currently with the Well, that's a great question, Sean, and, and regrettably, the system is not perfect. There are several pretty significant challenges or problems uh, in my view. First is uh, the whole idea of underreporting. By some estimates, only 3 to 5% of significant adverse events for medical devices uh, <coughs> pardon me, are actually reported to the manufacturer and the FDA, which means that 95 to 97% are not. You know, all of us, myself included, we, we tend to view the world through our own particular set of eyeglasses, through our own experiences. And what all of us have to realize is that whatever decisions, whatever judgments we're making, whatever changes we're making, we're making based on the information that we have, not the information that we don't have. So if we don't have some 95% of the information, that's a pretty big hole. Uh, you know, the, the late great Carl Sagan said that uh, evidence of absence is, uh, is, is I'm sorry, um, what, did, what did he say? He said the... Um, uh, um, forgetting the quote for a minute here. Uh, he said that, that, uh, that uh, oh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Let me say that again. Ab absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. I see a lot of companies concluding, well, we haven't heard any problems about our product, therefore our product is perfect, it doesn't have any problems. Uh, 
Right. I think that's very, very dangerous thinking. And <clears throat> one of the suggestions that I've made to many uh, uh, companies in on the in their regular uh, sorry in their quality system and their QMS is why do you just simply wait for problems to be reported to you? Uh, what I call passive post-market surveillance. Why don't you go actively? Why don't you go prophylactically out to your customers periodically and say, "Hey, we haven't heard anything from you for a while. We just want to make sure that everything is okay. Are there any problems that you've noticed that maybe for whatever reason you haven't told us about?" I personally think that's the right thing to do, but as you can imagine, Sean, not everybody is is um, uh, is, is keen on doing that. There's no better way to avoid finding a problem than not to look for one. And so when you go out and specifically look for problems like this, um, you know, you're, then you have to deal with the consequences. So the underreporting, this is something that we all know is a problem, not just the devices, it's a problem with drugs as well. <clears throat> Another problem, and I see this regrettably, Sean, with several companies that I've worked with, <clears throat> pardon me, they don't always follow what, they own, what the, uh, the, the procedures that they have in their own QMS system. In other words, their QMS system will say to periodically, maybe once a year or once a quarter or something like that, survey the medical literature uh, and so on and so on. They don't always do that. And so now the question becomes, why doesn't FDA enforce these kinds of uh, requirements? Well, regrettably, Sean, and we have exactly the same problem in the drug world. Um, Congress really has not given FDA the enforcement teeth to really uh, you know, make companies do this. I would like to think that companies would do this because they understand that this is the right thing to do. And believe me, if they don't do these things, forget about the FDA, Sean, from a product liability perspective, this is a huge nightmare for them. Right. Uh, and so um, I would like to think that they would do it anyway. And in a couple of occasions, Sean, I don't like to do this very often, but when I see a company not doing some of these things that I think they should be doing. I say, all right, you know, you can, you, you, you know, you you can take your 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 um, chances with the FDA. But let me tell you, if a problem happens to a patient from one of your medical devices and you get sued, and undoubtedly you will get sued, these things from a product liability perspective that you're not doing, these can really be a, a, a nightmare for you. So I'll, I'll play that card if I have to, Sean, but I really don't like to. Yeah, and, and just uh, as a, as a follow-up, I think, you know, I know that we've talked about the lack of communication from industry when we're, when we're discussing an issue, uh, regardless of what it is. Um, one, of the, one of the criticisms that we've brought up is the lack of communication from the industry, whether it be, you know, something like Advomed or uh, it be, you know, device companies themselves or the FDA. There's a lack of communication, a lack of, uh, you know, kind of explaining things or, you know, explaining why a, why a method is done a certain way. In this case, you know, uh, you mentioning uh, Congress not uh, providing FDA the, the teeth, as you put it, to uh, enforce, uh, you know, uh, requirements or enforce uh, certain, certain orders, for lack of a better word, that they've given to manufacturers you know, if somebody heard that, all of a sudden, the, the not not that I'm, you know, advocating passing the buck, but hey, if the FDA can't do what people want them to do, the reason is they don't have the authority. You then have to go to the person or the organization, in this case Congress, and say, hey, 
give these guys the authority to do what they need to do to, to ultimately protect patients and, and ensure, uh, you know, device safety. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, you know, it, there's, there's a, a few problems there, the, the lack of communication, the lack of understanding why things are being done the way they're being done and, and who's the next one in line that's responsible. Well, regrettably, Sean, there's an awful lot of truth to what you just said, and I'll take it just a half a step further, and believe me, I take no pleasure in saying this about our industry because I've been working in this industry for a very long time, and I think there's a lot of things that we do well, but I think there's also some things that we don't do very well, and we need to talk about how we can make them better. There are companies, not just uh, medical device companies, but I've seen this happen in the drug world as well that take this as a calculated risk. In other words, when we don't do post-market surveillance, when we don't do post-approval uh, studies or, or, or an, uh, when we advertise a product in an off-label way, they'll take it as a, as a calculated risk. In other words, they'll say, okay, well, the likelihood of FDA coming back and you know, getting upset with us up to, on this is not very high. And even if they do, then we're really going to get just sort of a slap on the wrist and we can say, oh, we're sorry, we didn't know we were supposed to do this and we won't do it again, blah, blah, blah. Um, that is a, a strategy that some companies employ. Um, and and uh, so, you know, I think for anybody that's worked in this industry, when you're really honest, and let's be honest, Sean, you know, a lot, a lot of people would like to talk about, you know, very candid, very honest, you know, what are, how do things happen in the real world? These things do happen in the real world. And one, right. one very last thing that I'll just mention, Sean, since you, you talked about communication between the industry and the FDA and so on. Well, I hear an awful lot of talking, Sean. I don't necessarily hear a lot of communicating. And one thing I've learned in being married is just because my wife and I are talking doesn't necessarily mean that we're communicating. I think the same thing happens uh, between uh, within companies, uh, between, for example, R&D and regulatory, uh, or between a company and the FDA. Just because two people or two companies are talking doesn't necessarily mean they're communicating. Something to think about. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I want to jump to the uh, the third and and the final suggestion by the New York Times uh, editorial board statement, and that was loosen industry's grip. Uh, this is in reference to the um, the the connection uh, between FDA and the the companies that it is overseeing. Uh, so my question is. You know, does the fact that the device industry funding the FDA's work make them a customer, as as the Times statement or editorial board statement suggests? Um, and are the fee another another thing that they allege is that the fees that the companies pay to to fund FDA are contingent on speed of approval? and also uh, providing the least restrictive pathway possible. What were your thoughts on that? Well, it's a great question, Sean, and regrettably there's nothing new to me about this either because fundamentally you're asking the question about user fees, and uh, uh, this, is, this is a debate that's been happening for probably at least the last 20 years. As most of your audience probably knows, um, approximately 60% of FDA's operating budget comes directly from our industry, from user fees. Um, and that certainly begs the question, 
is there a possibility of a conflict of interest there? And I think the short answer is yes. I think it's interesting to use the phrase in the, the, the Times does customers or the, the term customers because when industry is paying the FDA to review their submission, doesn't that automatically um, cause them to be a customer? And what does that company expect in return for that payment? Think about it this way, Sean. Um, um, uh, the uh, FAA, the uh, Federal Aviation Administration, um, is not paid by American Airlines, at least not directly, to regulate the airline. The, the, the budget of FAA is com comes out of the general pool. When you and I pay our taxes, we do not pay the IRS uh, to review our taxes. We do not slip a $100 bill in with our tax return when we send it to the agency. Perhaps it would help, maybe in my case. I don't know, although I should be careful because we're being recorded here, Sean. But you understand the point that I'm trying to make, right? So does it make sense for, um, for companies to pay FDA to review their submissions? I'm not suggesting that user fees are a good idea or a bad idea. I'm certainly not go for going so far to say that, uh, that they do definitely create a conflict of interest, but we have to obviously allow for the possibility of a conflict of interest. And I'll share with you, um, and I have to be very, very careful what I say here, Sean, uh, but I'll share with you uh, anecdotally a story that's happened to me several times within FDA. As you and your audience know, Sean, I work uh, as a consultant for the agency as well, so I see these issues from both sides. I have a number of reviewers of, in the agency who are personal friends of mine. Some of them go back to uh, graduate school together. Um, I've been in meetings at FDA representing a company where we'll go out for a break in the, in the hallway, for example, and one of the reviewers will come up to me privately and they'll ask me, hey, do you think that I'm asking the company too many questions? Do you think that I'm asking the company too difficult questions? And the question is, Sean, why is that reviewer asking me that kind of a question? It's because right. they understand that 60% of their uh, paycheck is coming from the people sitting on the other side of the table. So look, at the end of the day, I don't care where the money comes from, whether it comes from the general pool, whether it comes from user fees, whatever. What, what's most important to me, as we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, any regulations that we have in place now or any new regulation for the future, it's got to be able to make our products uh, safer and more effective and at the same time not uh, um, stifle or inhibit innovation. So anything that takes us in that direction, I'm a big, fa uh, a big fan of. Great. Well, um, I, and, I, and I think, uh, I think we've, we've you know, covered quite a bit of the statement. Uh, I, I definitely foresee uh, things that will tie back to this that w that we'll be speaking about in the in the future. So, unfortunately, I think we're we're at a time where we're going to have to we're going to have to wrap it up here. Um, do you, you know? I'll give you a, a, a thirty seconds if you have a a final thought or a final comment on the the editorial board statement or just about some of the ideas that they had, if you, if you could share that. Well, uh, again, John, thanks for the opportunity to be part of the discussion. Look, as I said earlier, and I've said in some of our previous discussions, I think the, the, the solution to most problems is more communication, not less. And when I say communication, I don't mean just talking. 
I mean real communication, having an honest, open dialogue, not just about what happens in the theoretical world of regulatory affairs, but in the real world of the medical device industry and in the practice of medicine. Um, and so I think it's important for all of us working in this industry to engage in those discussions as much as possible within our companies and outside of our companies, um, because call me naive, Sean, and certainly many people do, but ultimately I'm trying to improve our industry, I'm trying to improve our image, I'm, I'm trying to make the world a better place. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I can't, can't argue with that being a, a, a lofty, lofty goal, and, but a worthwhile one. Uh, so I, and, I, and I hope just uh, in, the, in the interest of communication, I hope uh, people pay attention to the, the uh, announcements being made by, by uh, FDA and when there is a call for comments uh, on, on something being proposed or an idea that there is uh, um, you know, companies re, uh, reaching out and getting involved and, and providing their own insight or their own uh, uh, opinions on, on you know, an, an initiative or whatever, whatever the idea is. Um, but as I said, I, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this episode. Uh, I hope it was uh, useful and valuable to you. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, gets you communicating with colleagues uh, uh, on some of the issues that are being brought out in the industry. Uh, for Mike Drews, this has been Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of MPO, saying thanks for listening.